Well, as Bobby Joe pointed out, the passage we're looking at for today begins with a therefore. And therefore implies there was a whole bunch of stuff before that. So we're in a series on Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul was a, one of the earlier followers of Jesus, and he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. These early people of God who were gathering to talk, to share, to learn about the crucified and risen Messiah, to see what it looks like to live in community. And they faced challenges just like any church. One of the challenges was divisions that went on in the church. And so part of what Paul is writing to is addressing that. But he's also introducing himself. He's introducing who he is and who Jesus is. And Romans is often seen as one of the most theologically deep letters. It's kind of a central letter, one that we often go to because it spells out a lot of what Paul thinks about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so as he comes to chapter 5, although he wouldn't have certainly had chapter numbers here, he would have just been this long letter that was being read to the people there in Rome. I want us to think back what's come before. He starts off in the beginning and he tells us that the gospel, the good news is about Jesus. If anything else, the book of Romans is about Jesus and all that he's done. And then he starts off and he begins to introduce why we need Jesus, why we need God to come in and make a difference. And he portrays people as under the power of sin, as sinners and also under the power of sin, that we choose our own way over God's way, and that this enslaves us to these powers. And then he begins to say, but God has worked in us and he justifies us. And so there's this big word justification, which has lots of different meanings, but I think two central meanings. One is that he declares us innocent, but justification is not that. Some translations, depending on your translation, instead of justify, will say make righteous. And so it's not simply a declaration that we're innocent. It's also God making us new. And as we come into chapter five, that's a lot of what's going on here is what does this justification look like? What does it mean to be justified? What does this transformation, what does this change look like? And so he's just laid it out. He says justification is a gift. It's received by faith, and it brings us new life. And so chapters 5 through 8 are exploring this whole thing with a sense of but now. It's kind of those old before and after. It's this picture of what happens now. And one commentator said this, he says, everything in Romans 5 through 8 is intertwined, causing the reader to take four steps forward and two backwards, and then eight forwards, and then back to where the reader started. That's what Romans, it's this section of Romans, which is kind of what many people see as the highlight, the center of the book of Romans, Romans 5 through 8, it's complex. And we'll see over these next few months as we go through these passages, like, wait a minute, I thought I heard that before. And we will. He kind of goes back and forth. He takes all these themes and he sort of interweaves them together. And so there'll be times where you might hear me talk about something and say, well, Pastor, you didn't explain that. It's like, just wait a couple weeks because we'll talk more about that. Or maybe we'll come to a passage and you'll say, well, why didn't you talk about that? I said, because I talked about it a couple weeks ago. And so it gets complicated, but we'll see some of these ideas again. But part of what it's doing is saying, when we put our faith in Jesus... Because of God's work through Jesus, he brings new life to us. And what Paul is doing in Romans 5 through 8 is saying, well, okay, tell me, Paul, what does new life look like? And so what he does is he kind of shoots it from over here. He said, well, this is new life from a cosmic perspective. Well, then there's new life from this perspective, and then there's new life from this perspective. So he's switching it around, and he's, he's making us see it. 
And as one other person, he says, Romans 5 through 8 is about the fundamental reconstruction of our entire life. It's about how everything about us is remade and how what God has done in or through Jesus. So the passage we're reading today is kind of an overview. It's the introduction. It's that therefore, it's that hinge, it's that change from what's gone on in Romans 1 through 4 now to 5 through 8. It's the bridge. And the structure of this bridge is what scholars often call a chiasm. So a chiasm, I think one of the best descriptions I use, it's kind of like a, a sandwich or a hamburger. And so now you're all thinking about lunch and you're going to stop listening to me, right? So, and, and so what a chiasm is, is a, a literary structure in which you have these outer parts, and the outer parts are kind of mirrors each other. They're not exact. It's kind of like a, a hamburger bun, right? You get the top bun and the bottom bun, unless somebody at the restaurant messes up and gives you two bottom buns. They're, they're different. They're a little bit different, right? But they're similar in some ways. And then as you move in, there's these other parts that kind of mirror each other a little bit. They're not exactly the same, but you can see echoes, similarities between those. And then you come to the center part. And the center part, that's the important part, right? That's where your big hunk of eggplant is. Your impossible burger or your big hunk of beef, right, or chicken or whatever it is. That's the center part. And so a chiasm kind of does that. It brings us in. It structures all around. But what we want to look at is what we want to know. Because at the end of the day, and I get, the bun's kind of nice, but what do you really want? You want what's in the middle. And so in this passage here, he does exactly that. And he paints this chiasm, a picture of it. And so you see it there just real quick. Verses 1 through 2 talks about peace. Verse 11 talks about reconciliation. They're kind of the outer parts. They match each other. And then 2 through 5 and 9 through 10 kind of mirror each other because they both talk about hope. And then the center, the meat, the center of the passage is about Christ's death as God's love for us. And so that's the important part. That's it. And so that's where we're going to start there. So instead of starting at verse 1, which is how we normally, we're going to start at verse 6. And kind of see that center part because we want to understand that and then see how the rest of it supports and builds around that. So in Romans 5, 6, Paul says this. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. That God has this sense of timing and knows what needs to be done. Then he goes on, he says, when we were still powerless... He paints his pictures, and he's painted this already in all of chapters 1 through 4, as saying, we don't have the power in and of ourselves to break free of sin. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to forgive ourselves, nor do we have the power in ourselves to break free from the slavery of sin, this oppression of sin, this systems of sin that keep us doing the same things. We're familiar with that idea where we, we get stuck in something and we can't stop doing it. It says, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus, so Christ is a, is a, is a term, is a, is a title, means the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the chosen one dies for the ungodly. Jesus doesn't just die for the good people. He doesn't just die for the righteous people, which if you've read chapters 1 through 3, you realize there's none of them anyhow. So, but He dies for the ungodly. And so, 
we start off and we start to realize how we're described. We're described as powerless. We're described as the ungodly. We're described later in the passage as sinners, as enemies. In a sense, what we're saying is we're undeserving of this. And so, as Paul gets to this, he's going to be describing it as a gift, and this term grace. And we use the term grace, and grace is going to come up even more next week. But Paul's idea of grace, and we have pictures of grace, and so most of us, we hear the word grace, we think like something we don't deserve. But in the ancient world, when Paul was writing this word grace, or he would have used the word charis in Greek, could be translated as grace or gift. In the ancient world, they had different ideas of when you gave a gift. And while we think of in the modern Western world as gifts as like, oh, no strings attached, there's nothing to it. In the ancient world, gifts were only given to somebody who deserved it. Gifts were given to somebody who was worthy. Gifts were given for a purpose to establish relationships. And Paul starts to describe something different. Something where what we get doesn't match with what we deserve. Paul calls this the gift or grace. It's unmerited. And so, when we think about it, we think about, well, that's not what grace means. We have a definition of grace as something that's unmerited because of what God did in Jesus. And Paul uses that word to describe it. And so, the description of what Jesus has done changes the very understanding and meaning of the word. Now, the word has many other, and we'll explore it over the next few weeks, that grace is not simply about the fact that it's incongruous, that it doesn't match the merit, that it's undeserved, but there's something else going on, that it's unconditioned. And when Paul goes on, he says, this isn't how people usually work. So in Romans 5, 7, he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Just kind of a strange, as I read that, I'm like, well, What's the difference between a righteous person and a good person? It's not entirely clear, but I think the idea going on behind it is saying, well, somebody might die for somebody who's really good. I mean, who's a righteous person. You might. And then he goes on, he says, well, that's pretty rare, but for a good person, and I think the sense of good person is somebody you know well. You might choose to die. And so, Paul's making the observation that most of us sitting here, if we heard about somebody who was a really good person, but they lived maybe in California, or they lived in Sudan, or they lived in Venezuela, and they were going to die, and we could sacrifice our lives to save them, you know, but, and they're a really, really good person. Some of us might think about it a little bit, but not real long, right? But now, what if it was a spouse? or a child, or a sibling, then what Paul's saying, well, someone might dare to die. I mean, then, then, we would, then we would think about it a little more. And so, he's setting up this contrast. He says, that's how the world works. You know, for somebody on the other side of the world, eh, maybe not. Somebody we don't know real well, but who's a really good person, we might. But for somebody who's close to us, we might consider it. But what about God? Verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love for us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, it's this picture of God's love. God's love is demonstrated in his de the death of Jesus, which isn't just for good people. 
but for sinners. In other words, rather than somebody who's in close relationship with us, somebody who's broken. And so Michael Gorman says it this way. He says, this is a counterintuitive God, a God who breaks with the ancient and often modern convention of waiting for the offending party to start the reconciliation process. So that's how we do it. We often wait. If somebody offends us, we wait for them to start the process, right? If, if you run into me, if you hurt me somehow, I'm gonna, you know, like, I want things to get better, but you better start the process because you're the one whose fault it was. But God works in a very different way. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion with God, while we were still distant. So most of us are maybe familiar, or you may be familiar with one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, John 3.16. It says, for God so loved. And so, when it says so loved, doesn't mean like so much. It means so loved, loved in this way. While we were yet, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so, this is how God's love works. God doesn't start with us and say, well, clean yourself up and then I'll love you. And sometimes we have even a distorted idea of what, how God works. We think maybe, well, we were sinners and God was really mad at us. He wanted to punish us. And then Jesus came and now God loves us. I want you to go back and read Romans 5.8. It doesn't say that after Jesus died, God loved us. It doesn't say because of what Jesus done. It says while we were still sinners, it says God demonstrates His love for us in this. In other words, God's love begins while we're still enemies. I mean, it's easy to love somebody we get along with, but God is this God who reaches out and says, this humanity, these people that I've created are in rebellion against me. They're choosing their way over mine. They're worshiping other gods. They're doing things that I've asked them not to do, and I love them. I love them. And so this is where he's getting at is this incredible sense of what God's love looks like. It's not at all how our love operates. And so that's why it's this center of the passage. Because Paul wants us to get that, and if you get nothing else from this sermon today, is to understand or to begin to understand, begin to reflect on, begin to meditate on God's incredible love. That God doesn't wait for us to clean our act up. God doesn't want us to reach a certain level and say, well, when you, when you get to this level, then I can love you. But when you're down here still down, I'm not quite good enough. But instead, while we are enemies, while we are the ungodly, while we are powerless, God loves us. We'll see later on in the letter how we're then called to reflect that, but here we're focusing primarily on what God does. And so there's this fulcrum, this change that goes on in this strange economy of God where death yields life. And so that's the center of it all, to say that God loved us in Jesus. And what does He do? He begins this process and He gives His life for us. He doesn't simply look and say, I love you all. Hey. Doesn't send us a note. Doesn't paint it up in the sky. Doesn't simply say, but He takes action and demonstrates. Notice that word, He demonstrates. He shows us what His love looks like. And so, when we have a question, it's like, well, what does God's love look like? Well, God's love looks like Jesus. And it's also a reminder as we think about it, sometimes when we start to question 
well, does God really love me? Because as we spend time in church, sometimes we begin to distort and forget this basic idea of the good news. Maybe we look back at our week and say, man, this was just a bad week for me. I mean, there were those three times I lost my temper. There was that time I was angry. There was that time I took that thing. There was that time, oh, I'm not sure. And, and we, we start to wonder. We may not say it out loud, but somewhere in our subconscious, we start to wonder, does, I don't know if God really loves me. And, and we may not frame it in those words, but we might start to think that like, well, you know, I'm just looking at my life and how things are going, and I, I feel kind of distant from God. I'm not sure God is really there. I, I don't know if God loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you ever get to that point where you're thinking, well, I'm not sure, I, I don't know. Because sometimes people have questions like, maybe it's not you, maybe it's a friend or somebody's like, well, I, I don't know, can God love somebody like me? And Paul wants us to understand that that's at the heart of this good news that he's talking about. Is there's not a standard, there's not a, well, I'm not sure, God loves all these people, but you quite aren't there yet. Well, no, you're, you're not quite there. That while we were still sinners, and, and he uses that we, meaning while all of us were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's kind of the center. So now we're going to go out to the, 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 the buns, the outside, and start to work our way in and to think about what it looks like and how it is. And so he's been talking about this thing. And so in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified or made righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so We've already hinted at this a little bit. There was an alienation between God, but since now we have peace. Or down in verse 11, remember this reflection part? The two outer parts kind of like, so down in verse 11, it says not only this, but we boast in, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so reconciliation and peace kind of match each other a little bit. Are they identical? No, they're not identical, but they mirror each other. They reflect each other, help us understand what's going on. And it's saying what was broken is healed. And we have this concept, sometimes peace is this great word that we sometimes diminish was like, oh, I've got a peace about this. By that way, we just mean like, I don't have any anxiety about it. Or maybe peace is this sense of, well, there's no more conflict. But we probably have experienced that moment in a relationship where you're not actively fighting anymore. But would you really say there's a relationship? I mean, you could say, well, there's peace. I mean, there, nobody's yelled at each other. Nobody's said anything to each other. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not that, well, we're no longer yelling at each other. We're no longer fighting. But there's true peace. There's wholeness. The Hebrew word is shalom. There's this sense of all things are right. It's really a sense of returning to the way God thinks. I think one of the best ways to describe or define the word shalom is the way things were meant to be or the way things were supposed to be. So it's a picture back to the early, those first pages of the Bible where God creates a world and there's shalom, there's peace. And he says again and again, he created and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good. And you see people 
and God living in harmony together. They're walking in the garden. There's harmony between people and creation. There's harmony between the people, between human and life, between Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve, between these two people. There's this sense of wholeness and peace. And then sin enters the world and it's shattered. The peace The shalom is gone. The relationship between Adam and Eve is broken. The relationship between Adam and Eve and the creation is broken. The relationship between Adam and Eve and God is all broken. Everything is broken. It's shattered. There is no shalom. There is no peace. And here, what Paul is saying is now, through Jesus Christ, in other words, through His death and resurrection, we now have peace. God mends that. He's beginning that process of making it right. He's going to talk later in chapter 8 about the reconciliation with creation in chapters 12 through 15 about the reconciliation between peoples and our call to do that. Paul talks in one of his other letters about us as ambassadors of reconciliation. But here his focus is on where there was separation, where there was division, where there was disharmony. Now there's wholeness and rightness and harmony. God's bringing to do this all together and it's all, and that's justification. That's part of what justification is. Justification means things are being made right. This relationship with God that's been broken because of actions on our part, not on God's part, but actions on our part, God now reaches out and begins to restore, to heal. And I want us to notice how God does that. Years ago, I saw an advertisement for a t-shirt, and the t-shirt had a picture of like what looked like a rifle scope, and then it said, peace through superior firepower. And that was the language of Rome. The, the, the ancient Roman Empire, there's this phrase that's used by historians called the Pax Romana, this period of peace of Rome. Well, how did Rome bring peace? With the legions. Where there was a conflict, the Romans didn't go and say, oh, we got a conflict here, we're going to die for you. When there was a conflict in Gaul or in North Africa and the Roman legions came in and said, well, we need to have peace here, so be peaceful or you die. And here, God is showing us a totally different way of doing things. And it's a way because that is the way we are ingrained in our world to think that that's how peace happens. Is one side imposes it on the other. But hear what God is saying, that we have been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says through our Lord Jesus Christ, he's meaning through his death. Through Jesus coming and saying, I want peace and here's how I'm going to make peace. I'm not going to impose the peace on you. I'm going to die and I'm going to make things right. And this is the way that Jesus brings peace. And so we have peace, we have reconciliation, we have wholeness. And then he begins to move in a little bit better, a little bit more. And now we start to think, oh, this is something present. But he's saying the death of Jesus doesn't just deal with our past sins. It doesn't just deal with our current relationship with God. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ also deals with our future. And so again, if you remember our diagram, we had peace on the outside, and then the next was hope. And so verses 2 through 5, 
where it says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is the end of verse 2. Not only so, so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And then down in verses 9 and 10, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved? It's this future sense from God's wrath through Him. For if while we were God's enemies, remember that? We were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? And so what Paul is painting, he says, there's this future of hope. And so hope, another great word. We have lots of different ideas of what they're like. It's like, I hope the snow's gone by tomorrow. Right? But, but do we know that for sure? I mean, hope, that, that's, that's the kind of wish, this desire, this kind of like, well, I, I, you know, I hope my team wins this afternoon. I hope last, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the, the lotto went to $40 gazillion or whatever it was, the Powerball thing, there were probably a lot of people saying, I hope I win. Chances that we're pretty slim. But when Paul uses the word hope, it's a sense of certainty. It's this, it's this sense of, I know this is going to happen. So back when I started this series, I talked about uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And I've been doing some more, re- going back and reading some of, some of the older books and, and rereading some of that. And Tolkien, um, you may or may not know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and then a whole bunch of other things related to that, was good friends with another writer at the time named C.S. Lewis. And you may know C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, but he also wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, Lewis, in writing the Narnia Chronicles, I mean, you read those books and you're like, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. Like, oh, there's a giant lion and here's a, you know, lion is Jesus. I mean, Tolkien didn't think too highly of that, but Tolkien was a deep-thinking Catholic And he had this profound sense of theology, and there's a lot woven into the Lord of the Rings, and it isn't always there. But one of the ways he does that is Tolkien was also a master of language. He he was a a linguist, and one of the things he did was he just created languages. And actually, the stories that he wrote were in large part because he made up these languages. He's like, I got to do something with these languages now. Because that's what we all do, right? We make up an imaginary language, we create entire alphabets and grammar and stuff, and then we think, I need a story to go along with this language. And then you write 30 volumes, I mean, and I say 30 volumes because you think, oh, there's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. There's another uh, 12 volumes of books, four, four to 500 pages long, that his son Christopher Tolkien compiled of all of Tolkien's writings of like, well, he takes a story and then he redoes it. So, okay, so Tolkien's creating this other language. You're thinking, what? Pastor, what are you talking about? One of the languages he created was the language for the elves. And in the elvish language, he created two words for hope. One was Amdir, which was that kind of like, I hope the snow's gone tomorrow. And the other one was Estelle. And Estelle had kind of the root of that is with the stars because Estelle, hope, was a looking up. And what Tolkien was getting at was in his, crea- in his story was the one God, Eru or Iluvatar. And Estel 
was when the elves had the hope, not just in the looking out, not that kind of, like, I hope it's better tomorrow, but this sure and certain hope of looking up. And so when Paul talks about hope here, that's what he's talking about, not as a wish, not as a, but as a certainty. He says, therefore, we have this hope. And one of the ways he says, we have this hope. And how do we know that? How, do we, how can we trust God? Because God sent His Son and He died for us. That's why we can trust God. Because that's how much He, that's how much he cares. And because of all the promises He's got, because of all these things. Well, He starts, well, I don't know. Was, will, will God really see me through this? God gave Himself for you. So yes, God will see you through. And so there's this sense of what's going on. And he paints a little bit. He says, well, but I read through it quite quickly. He says, we, not only so, this is verse 3, but we also glory in our sufferings. Oh, sufferings. We all, who's here for suffering? <laughs> but do we have them? Do we have, do we have challenges? And sometimes we might start to say, well, but how do I make it through those? And we might start to lose those things but he reminds us of the value of hope in these. And he kind of creates this chain reaction. He says, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And so it's this somewhat circular thing. And he says, when suffering comes, we put our hope in God. And when we put our hope in God, it gives us perseverance. And that perseverance builds character, which builds hope, which kind of feeds back on itself. And where do we go to get that hope? This is verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because, or we could say it, hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope isn't grounded in a wish. Our hope is grounded in God's deep, deep, deep love for us shown in Jesus Christ and demonstrated in the pouring out of His Spirit. You see, it all goes back to that center part. It all goes back to that great gift of God, of Jesus giving His life for us. And so as we think about justification, it's experiencing the fullness of life in God. That while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. This is God's enemy love. And that enemy love begins to change and to transform everything. And that's why it's got to be the starting place. It's the place where we start. We start to wonder. We say, where do we start? We start with God's love shown to us in Jesus Christ. And everything comes out of that. And not only is it a gift from God, but it's a gift that changes and transforms. And we'll see that in the next few weeks is how it works. That the grace, the gift, isn't simply a gift given, but it's a gift that gives and changes and transforms. And one of the things here it begins to paint out is, it brings peace. And it also gives us a certain hope of salvation and a hope when things are hard. This is the hinge, the starting point. And what Paul wants us to get is at the center of it all, the thing we remember is God's love for us. And when we wonder what does God's love look like, it's an enemy love. It's a love that doesn't say, well, get a little better and I'll love you. Do a little better and I'll love you. When you're good enough, I'll love you. 
but it's a love that reaches down to us while we are powerless, while we are ungodly, while we are sinners, while we are enemies, while we are at war with God. God reaches into our life. God dies for us and makes things right. That's His gift to us. His amazing gift of love to us. And so may we receive that gift this day, and may we cling to that gift of love with hope, knowing that that hope will not disappoint, because what God has done now is also a guarantee of what He will do, that He will bring us through the challenges, that He will make us whole, that He will make us right, and in the end, He saves us and gives us resurrection. So may you know His love this day, His vast, incredible love for you. Amen.